going to do something a little different. I don't think I've ever spoken out of the book of Revelation on a Christmas message. Everybody says, yippee, right? (laughs) Hallelujah. There's a war in the spiritual realm that's been going on since the garden. And it continues today. There was a victory that was won approximately 2,000 years ago when Jesus went to that cross and came forth from that grave and resurrected, ascended to the Father, sent his Holy Spirit. But there's a battle that continues. And we're going to be looking at that today as we go forward. But as I said last week, I'm going to be looking also at some of the Christmas songs, the Christmas carols, the Christmas hymns that we sing. And the first one I'm going to look at, or the second one, last week we looked at Mary's in Luke. This time we're going to look at probably the most popular, the most sung song of all of the Christmas hymns, and that's Silent Night. Silent Night. Sometimes it's so interesting to me where these beautiful songs come from. What what put those words and those emotions in the heart of the person who wrote that song? And how did it transpire to become probably the most popular Christmas carol there is? Well, the story is pretty amazing. As a matter of fact, if it hadn't been for a broken organ in a church, we probably wouldn't have this song. Amazing, isn't it? God can use a broken organ, a good old-fashioned pump organ. There's a little village in Austria, Obendorf, and there was a young pastor there. He was only 22 years old, and he had promised, this is going way back, he had promised his congregation that there would be music on Christmas morning, but the problem was the organ was broke, and the repairman wasn't going to be able to get there till spring. Christmas Eve, he went to visit a couple of his congregants a young couple, a woodworker and his wife who had just had a newborn baby. And he went to their home on Christmas Eve to visit them, to bless them. And on the way home, it was one of those calm, peaceful nights when the stars are shining bright. And he got near the village in Austria, and he stopped on a hill, and he just looked around, and he saw this beautiful scene before him, the silence, the quiet, the stars in the sky. And he sat down and he wrote the words to Silent Night. Well, that night after he got back, he went to, we would call him his worship leader. He went to the guy in charge of the the music and said, I've got these words. We're going to sing this tomorrow. Create the music. And that night, he stayed up most of the night, and by morning, he had written the music for the song Silent Night. But they didn't have an organ, but he played a guitar. So the pastor, this 22-year-old pastor, and his worship leader sang a duet to their little tiny congregation in nowhere in the middle of Austria, the song Silent Night. 22 years later, This young pastor passed away in his early 40s. But what had happened in the spring, that very spring after he wrote and they created this song, 
the organ repairman came and he fixed the organ and he says, okay, now we need to try it out. Play something. Well, guess what they played? Silent Night. And the guy that fixed the organ was so astounded by this beautiful song, every church he went to to fix the organs, he brought the music. And then that 22 years later, the king of Prussia heard the music, and he declared, anytime there is a Christmas celebration in the nation I am the king of, we're going to play that song first. And that continued for another 22 years. And by that time, it had become famous and popular. Now that simple song has been translated into over 120 languages. And there's something about that song. I mean, I like all those Christmas hymns, but there's something about Silent Night. When you start to hear the music and you start to sing those words, there's something that happens. It's like a a nostalgic feeling of some sort comes upon you. It's like the scene itself of Mary and Joseph in this manger. The shepherds sitting out in the pastures with their flock on a quiet night and the the stars and the sky are so bright. All of these things, when you hear the music, you can't help but feel a little bit sentimental, a little bit nostalgic. You can't ignore it. The beauty of Christmas, or at least the birth of Christ. But now today, in many ways, Christmas has been totally hijacked. It's been hijacked by commercialism, probably more than anything else. What do we all do and worry about is how much money do we have and how many presents can we buy? Or maybe we're really on the other extreme and we wonder how many presents we're going to get. The advertisements, the commercials, if you want to be happy, you want to have a great Christmas, boy, the gifts better pile up under the tree. And what commercialism hasn't stolen, our culture and political correctness is sanitized right out of Christmas. You can't even put a crush up in many places. You can't even talk about Jesus in so many places. You know, there's a story about a little girl and her mother. Could be any of you mothers with your little girl walking down the streets, at least when they used to put crushes in the windows of the storefronts. And the little girl sees and stands before the crash, and she's looking at this this scene in the window, and she looks at her mom and goes, Mom, who's the baby? And the mother says, Well, that's baby Jesus. And the little girl goes, Really? And the mother goes, Why do you say that? Why doesn't he grow? He looks the same as he did last year. And the reality of that story is most of the world can put up with a baby Jesus in a manger. That story is okay. But nobody wants to hear about a grown-up Jesus. We want to keep him small. Keep him as a cute little baby, a cuddly baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. We can talk about that. The world will talk about that. They'll even embrace that to a degree. But now let's start talking about the grown-up Jesus. And they don't want to hear about it. 
the world has become like that little girl in so many ways. You know, it might have been a really calm, beautiful night that night on earth as the shepherds were in the fields and this scene was on a, was folding, was unfolding right before their eyes. And, but in the cosmic realm, in the spirit realm, war was taking place. Warfare was taking place. The devil, Satan, knew what had happened. But he begins to front, begins to fight that war on a new front, if you would. Since the garden, he'd been trying to destroy the nation of Israel. Whoops. Rebuke you. And now his target changes. He's got to kill that baby. Warfare going on all around us. We're going to look at Revelation chapter 12. Now the danger with going to Revelation just about anywhere is because of the confusion there can be about symbolism and timing. We're going to see in some of these verses... All of a sudden, in the same verse, 33 years passed between the, 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 the period that was put there and the capital letter on the first word. Other places we see, we're in a whole different time frame by hundreds of years. Some of them are futuristic and haven't even happened yet. If you were reading in chapter 11, for example, you would see that the first three and a half years of what we call the tribulation had taken place. And all of a sudden, we're about ready for that last three and a half years when it gets really ugly. So it's a little bit hard to follow. So I'm not going to be going into depth on all of the symbolism and all of the timing. But I'm going to introduce us to at least five characters in these verses. And I'm going to do this so we understand the war that's been going on since almost the creation of the world. And it's going to continue until Jesus comes back for his church. So I'm going to read, starting in Revelation chapter 12. The title of the message was Silent Night, Holy War. A silent night, a holy war. Uh, Cindy Barnes asked me if I was reading this book. Evidently, somebody wrote a book by this title. And I'm assuming it's sort of about this same stuff. But I didn't steal the information from his book. However, I did steal the title from a... Uh, somebody, I I don't even remember his name, but it was a pastor who preached a sermon, and he used this title. So the title I stole, borrowed, borrowed. Silent Night, Holy War. In Revelation 12, starting in verse 1, it says, A great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and her head a crown of twelve stars. And she was with child, And she cried out, being in labor and in pain to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven. And behold, a great red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads were seven diadems. And his his tail swept away a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she gave birth, he might devour her child. And she gave birth to a son, a male child, who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up to God and to his throne. 
As we go through these 17 verses, we're going to see some characters introduced to us. The woman here, I believe, is the nation of Israel. Some people call it Mary. I would say it's impossible if you read the whole section that it's Mary. But Mary is truly a representative of the nation of Israel. She is of the lineage of David. Then we're introduced to the child, Jesus Christ, the Messiah. We're introduced to the red dragon, Satan. We're introduced eventually to Michael, the archangel of God. And I believe we're also introduced to the redeemed of Christ when the persecution in the end times is so intense. And our focus is primarily on what the devil is trying to do about all this. Verse 1 starts out and says, a great sign. The word there is the word that we get the word mega from. A mega sign. A big deal. A big deal. A sign appeared in heaven. This woman, the nation of Israel, if you would, crying out in pain, crying out for a deliverer that they would be set free from the bondage of Roman rule and the violence that's taking place, looking for a Messiah. It's time. And the woman The woman Israel has been prevailing, prevailing, crying out to God. And God's going to answer. And a child is born. But then it says another sign. And that word another there is, the meaning is it's a different sign. Not different in character. Different in quality. A horrendous sign, an ugly sign, an evil sign appears. And this is the red dragon, Satan. And Satan and his angels. And notice it says his tail, the dragon, Satan. He swept a third of his angels with him to the earth to do battle, to do warfare. Why are they so intense? Why does why is Satan on such a warpath? We need to go back to Genesis chapter three, verse fifteen. Most of you will remember the verse. Adam and Eve have messed up. Perfection is now gone. Satan had deceived them. And God comes on the scene and he says, to Satan, he says, I'm going to put enmity between you and the woman. And between your seed and her seed, he shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. He's going to crush you. Yeah, you're going to do some damage along the way, but you are going to be crushed by the seed of the woman. It's going to come forth, this seed, from where God intends it to come forth. And the whole history of the Old Testament in so many ways is a chronology of a war going on between Satan and God. Really what it is, it's Satan trying to attack, but every time he attacks... It looks good for a moment or two, but God outfoxes him every time. Satan knew that the most crucial and critical element of God's plan to liberate the earth from the effects of the curse and the effects of the fall was to invade earth with the Messiah. And it was going to come through the seed of the woman. And so knowing that he understands that, and I'm just going to hit on a few of the the episodes in the Old Testament so we can see that this warfare 
has been intense for centuries upon centuries upon centuries. Cain and Abel. Cain kills Abel. The devil's evil influences this scene to take place. Abel is dead. Cain is a murderer. The devil thinks he's got him. Lo and behold, Seth is born. And the lineage continues. Satan then proceeds for many, 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 many years to just totally pollute the earth. Evil and violence everywhere. And God decides to send a flood. Satan thinks, I won. There's no one righteous. And then he sees an ark, and he sees Noah and his family. God had a plan. Satan would have to attack in another way. God chooses a man named Abraham. And he tells Abraham that you are going to become a nation of my chosen people. And from you is going to come the seed, the Messiah. It's going to come from you, the enemy. Here's these things. And he comes and he does something that maybe you never even thought of this way, but Abraham, you're going to have a child. He's going to have a son, and the seed's going to come from your many descendants. Well, wait a minute. This is taking too long. Why don't you just go with your handmaid? Why don't you just go to her? She can have a son for you. The enemy tries to again manipulate and change God's perfect plan. Abraham caves in and has a baby, but the miracle does take place just as God wanted. Abraham and his wife have a son named Isaac. The lineage continues. He has sons, Esau and Jacob. The enemy again enters in. Many things take place in this story, but the bottom line is Esau wants to kill his brother Jacob. God intervenes, changes hearts. Jacob survives and becomes the father of many nations. Satan comes to Pharaoh and says, you need to kill these Hebrew babies. They're becoming too populated in this. They're going to rise up against you. Kill them all. So Pharaoh makes an edict to kill all the babies that are born to the Hebrew women. But somebody puts a little baby in a basket in the water, and Moses, the deliverer, is saved. Satan doesn't give up. King Saul is king. It's prophesied that David is going to become king. Saul goes a little nuts. Evil influences King Saul, and it becomes his goal in life to kill David. Doesn't work. David becomes king. And of course, we know some of the stories that the enemy tried to throw David off track, but he didn't succeed. Most amazing story, it's in Second Chronicles chapter 22. 
knowing what's been taking place, knowing what Satan's goal is. He's got to stop this nation. He's got to stop the lineage. He's got to stop the seed from being able to come to fruition. And in Second Chronicles chapter 12, from the line of David, the line that is going to provide or give birth to the Messiah, there's one baby left alive. That's it. The enemy had killed all the rest. Someone found this baby, took this baby and hid it for six years. And Joash is put in as king at the age of seven years old. Amazing what God can do when the enemy thinks he's about to win. Down to one little baby. And he keeps trying. Then we come to the night that we've read about when Jesus is born. Now Satan has got to change his plan. The Messiah has been born. He is from the lineage of David, the one who was prophesied centuries ago in Genesis. The one that's going to crush his head has been born. But Satan also understands that the nation of Israel is critical to God's full plan. So he, he's got to figure out, what do I do? He said, first, I'm going to try and kill Jesus. I'm going to kill him. That's my goal. I want to destroy him. I want to ruin his influence. So as soon as he's a man, he's taken into the desert to be tempted by the devil. If he sins, the deal's over. And I don't know, maybe when he took him to the pinnacle of the temple and challenged him to jump off, telling him the angel would catch him, maybe he wanted him to just commit suicide. I don't know. One way or another, Jesus could have given in to those temptations. He tells us he was tempted just as we have been tempted in every way. But he didn't. And Satan has to go on with a new plan, different plan, different form of attack. He uses the religious people to try to discredit him totally. They call him Beelzebub. You're demon-possessed, Jesus. And you guys are going to follow a demon-possessed guy. That didn't work. He was back in his hometown in Nazareth. And if you read the story there, he's in Nazareth and he's doing some teaching in the synagogue. And the people don't like it. The religious leaders don't like it. And it says they took him to the edge of the cliff, took him to the hill outside the city, a cliff outside the city, and we're going to push him off the cliff trying to kill him. Satan's trying to use his own people to murder him. Didn't work. He did a vanishing act. Walked right through them all. Got away. The battle continues and continues and continues. It goes on and on. And, of course, eventually we get to the last week of his life. Satan enters Judas. Judas betrays him. Satan thinks his plan is working perfectly. He gets convicted in a kangaroo court of totally false charges. He's nailed to a cross. Dies as death is confirmed with a spear in his side. Satan thought he won. I'm sure he thought he won. Just think, from the garden till this point, he'd been trying to win, and he finally won. And they celebrate. But, ooh, they started too early. 
they started celebrating too early because all of a sudden on the third day, the tomb was removed. The stone was removed from the tomb. Jesus was resurrected from the dead. Satan was in trouble. And he knew it. So he didn't do anything new and creative. He went back to his original plan. Because he knew the nation of Israel was so critical to God's full plan, he goes back to destroy or try to destroy the nation of Israel. And he extends his warfare to what we call the church, you and me. You and I are still in the battle because of that. The scene changes in Revelation chapter 12 at verse 6. I want to read verse 6 through 9. There was a war in heaven, and his Satan and his angels are going to be thrown down to earth this time. It says, Then I heard a loud voice. Excuse me, back up, verse 6. Then the women fled to the wilderness. Who is the woman? Israel, the nation of Israel. When is this time? It looks to me like it's at the beginning of the last three and a half years of the tribulation. If you don't know what I'm talking about, don't worry about it. Go check it out. And it says, she went to the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God so that there she would be nourished for 1,260 days. Before you do the math, that's three and a half years. And there was war in heaven. Now Michael and his angels were waging war with the dragon. And the dragon and his angels waged war. And they were not strong enough. And there was no longer a place found for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of the old, the serpent of old who was called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. And I believe never to have entrance into heaven again, ever. He was cast out to the earth. And then in verse 10, I believe there's another scene for us. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now, listen to these words, good news. Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ are come for the accuser of our brethren... And I think that's a significant phase to give us an indication who might be doing this and proclaiming this. Of our brethren, I believe it's those of redeemed of the Lord that are already in heaven. The redeemed of the Lord. But our brethren has been thrown down. He who accuses them before our God day and night. And they overcame him because of the blood of the Lamb and because of the word of their testimony. And they did not love their life even when faced with death. For this reason, rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the earth and the sea because the devil has come down to you having great wrath, knowing that he has only a short time left. He knew his days were numbered. And he was going to pull out all the stops. And when you get into study of the end times revelation, you realize the last three and a half years are a place you don't want to be. Verse 13. And when the dragon saw that he was thrown down to earth, he persecuted the woman, Israel. He intensifies. He's still attacking Israel in the last three and a half years before he has a really bad day. 
for three and a half to persecute the woman who gave birth to the man-child. But the two wings of the great eagle were given to the woman so that she could fly into the wilderness to her place where she would be nourished for a time, one year, and times, two years, and a half time, three and a half years total. From the presence of the serpent, and the serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman, so that he might cause her to be swept away with the flood. But the earth helped the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and drank up the river with the dragon poured out of his mouth. So the dragon was enraged with the woman and went off to make war with the rest of her children, who keep the commandments of God, and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Now, that could be a really confusing few paragraphs I've read. But God is going to protect his redeemed. He's going to protect that remnant of Israel to the very end. And there is rejoicing because we know the victory has been won. When we look here, we're looking future. We're living in that time before the tribulation starts, the church age. We're living in this time from the day that Jesus was born, the church was established, the day of the Pentecost, and on. We're living in that time. But the enemy is still fighting. He's still fighting. What does this have to do with us, all of this stuff? Well, we need to remember, first of all, what they declared from heaven. We have won the victory because of the blood of the Lamb. The blood of the Lamb. That baby in the manger grows up. And he dies on a cross and sheds his blood for us and redeems us, redeems us from condemnation. Look at our conflict. Try to bring this back to a more personal level for us, realizing the war continues. You may remember in verse 10 it said, And Satan accuses day and night. Day and night, he's the accuser of the brethren. He's the accuser of us. He even has the gall to try to accuse us to God. Guy doesn't learn. But he also accuses you and me. How does he do that? How does he work? How does this happen? We ought to remember he is a liar and a deceiver. Amen? We all know that, right? He's a liar and a deceiver. That's his modus operandi. And his, his desire is to steal, kill, and destroy whatever he can do using lies and deception. What does he do? Well, first of all, so I believe one of the things he does, he tempts us to sin by making it look enjoyable. How many of us would be foolish enough to sin if we looked at it and said, that would not be fun. That would be good. That wouldn't be good. It would be painful. It would be destructive. I'm not going there. Well, Satan's smarter than that. He tries to deceive us into thinking and looking at sin and saying, ah, that doesn't, that's not so bad. Looks good. He's a deceiver. He sugarcoats sin. You know, if we would take the time to step back when temptation is coming upon us and we feel that thing rising up in our flesh to sin, if we could just step back for a moment and just think of the consequences of our sin. We wouldn't go there. But Satan hides that. He lies and deceives us. And then, then, once we have sinned, oh boy, does the attack start. You think you're a Christian? Look what you did, just did. You're a follower of Christ? Who are you trying to kid? You think you're forgiven? 
You think God can forgive you for that? As a matter of fact, you think he's going to forgive you for something you already knew was wrong before you did it, but you did it anyway? What's wrong with you? Guilt, shame, condemnation, the attack will intensify lies and deceptions. What's the lie and the deception? Well, you and I may have done some pretty bad things. I know I have. But the reality is the truth that he's leaving out is what we need to remind him of when he's attacking us. We need to remind him that he was cast out of heaven. We need to remind him that there's a day he's coming when he's going to be cast into a bottomless pit and he's going to stay there for a thousand years. We need to remind him after he gets out of the bottomless pit, he's going to be cast in the lake of fire forever because the victory has been won by a baby in a manger who grew up and became a man. The lies that he uses... We sang about it this morning. He's our champion. There is nothing that the blood of Jesus didn't deal with if we confess it to him, if we accept Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. The slate's wiped clean. It doesn't last very long in our mind because we sin again, right? But God doesn't see us that way. Pastor Bob shared in the Sunday school this morning, he sees us already positioned in heavenly places. With Christ. He sees me and you through the pure blood of Jesus. We need to remind Satan of those things when the temptation comes. I don't have to sin because the power of sin has been broken by that blood. My sins are forgiven, guilty, no matter what. There's a humorous story about Martin Luther being attacked by the devil. And the devil says, Go ahead, write down all the sins that you think you've been forgiven of. And he writes them all down. And Martin Luther says again, is that it? And the devil says, no, I need more paper. So he writes them all down again, more and more of them. And Martin Luther says, are you done yet? No, I need more paper. And the devil keeps writing them all down. And he says, are you done? He says, yep. He takes the paper. Martin Luther takes the paper. And he just writes one little sentence. All these sins are forgiven by the blood of Jesus. That's the mindset we need to have when the devil is fighting this war and we are drug into his battle because he hates us. Mostly, primarily, because he hates God. Therefore, he hates us. And he wants to hurt God. They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb. Does baby Jesus grow up? Amen. Does the world want to hear about the growing up Jesus? Not very bad. But our commission is to tell them about the growing up Jesus. To tell them what they don't think they want to hear because what they don't want to hear is the answer to all the issues in their life. It's the answer to the loneliness and the heartbreak. It's the despair. It's the answer to all that guilt and condemnation that the devil is throwing on them. The answer to all of that you and I have if we know Jesus is our Lord and Savior. Whatever we're going through, whatever you're going through, Dealt with by Christ. It's not the baby in the manger. It's the Jesus on the cross. And it's the Jesus who has ascended to heaven. And sits at the right hand of the Father. In this throne. That God sees you and me sitting in. As joint heirs. Man that's an amazing concept. I hope you all understand it a little bit. 
That's how God sees Mike, even though Mike can be a real jerk and do some really stupid things and sin and have horrible thoughts in his mind at times. All of these things. And the devil can accuse. What are you talking about? I don't see him. They've been washed away by the blood of Jesus. Isn't that amazing? That's how God sees you and me. Absolutely amazing. It is so miraculous. And we need to embrace that. We'll believe the lies of the devil that bring us to destruction. But we've got the promises of God which bring us to life and to be able to live out the victory of the abundant life in Christ that we have. He loves to make us think we're stuck. He loves to make you and I think there is not a single move you can make. You're defeated. I'm going to put a picture up of a chess match. This is a a real picture. This is a real painting. It was painted a long time ago. It was painted, originally it was called Two Chess Players. It was renamed The Checkmate. And what the picture is of is two people. One is the devil, and the other is a 16-year-old man. And the devil challenged him to a game of chess. And what they were playing for The loser had to serve the winner for the rest of his life. In other words, the young man was fighting for his soul. And the legend behind the painting is the devil moves and says, checkmate in three moves. And the young player studies the board and studies the board and studies the board and tips over his king. You've never played chess when you tip over your king. That means you give up because there's no move to save you. Well, one evening, and this part of the story is true, a chess master in the 1800s by the name of Paul Morphy. You can Google this whole story. Paul Morphy was over for dinner at a man's house who happened to be a pastor. His name was R.R. Harrison, and this took place in the late 1800s. And on the wall was hanging that picture. And all through dinner, the chess master kept looking up at that picture. And he'd look up at that picture and look up at that picture. As soon as the meal was over, he got up and walked over to that picture and he studied it. And he studied it. And he looked at it. And all of a sudden, he shouts, there's one move you can make. You're not checkmated. There's one move that you and I can make. If you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord, save you are condemned to eternity in hell with the devil. But you're not checkmated. Jesus Christ offers that invitation to all of us. He came to earth for everyone who would accept him. There's a gift of salvation. It's available to all. You're not checkmated. If you're here tonight or you're watching online and you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, that's the move you have to make or you will be serving Satan in hell for the rest of eternity. If you're here tonight, this morning, feeling bound by something or the enemy's been tormenting you in this battle that he takes to wage, 
that somehow or other, somehow or other, you're disqualified. You're not good enough. Your sin is too evil and too dark. You've said or done the wrong things too many times. You've sinned and and repented and sinned and repented and sinned and repented. You feel like a yo-yo in that part of your life, and you think there's no move. You're not checkmated. There's a move you can make. We confess our sins, and He forgives us. And we can walk in victory once again. Silent night, holy war. Saying it this morning, we win. God won. Jesus won. Let's stand together and try and guess what song we're going to sing. <laughs>